Asia Tech Podcast with Graham Brown and Michael Waits. Hello and welcome to Asia Tech Podcast. We're all about the stories that make the Asian tech ecosystem so dynamic, so awesome. Graham Brown and Michael Waits. My name's Graham. Michael joining me in the show. Michael, how are you doing? I'm super, Graham. Really super. How are you doing today? Fantastic. Now, here's one thing, Michael. We live a life pretty much a lot of the time on the road. Like a lot of people in our industry, we're often out there with the laptop, yeah. suitcase maybe sometimes. But we tend to call wherever we put our laptop down our home. And often that's a co-working space. So we're talking about co-working spaces today. And has that been a thing for you in recent times? Have you been more a user or more a supporter of co-working spaces? Yeah, so I mean, I've gone back and forth. It's a really good question, right? I've gone back and forth on this. When I first came to Bangkok, and obviously I'd never even heard of a co-working space before I moved to Southeast Asia because I always worked in, you know, in an office that was associated with my company, right? So yeah. I'd never even thought about the concept of co-working. But it's a real thing, and over the past five or so years, it's just exploded globally, yeah. really exploded. There are multiple business models, actually, that we can talk about. But, you know, when I came here, the really the only co-working space in Bangkok was Hubba. Yeah. And it was really in just a, you know, in a humble house on a small side soy. And it wasn't even that well attended, but it actually ended up being, and I think this is going to be thematic for the rest of the conversation, but it actually ended up being sort of a gathering place, not just for people that were mm. co-working, but also for sort of events and just like a gathering place for startups and venture capitalists and investors would go there. And, you know, after you go to a co-working space for the first time, it hits home that it's really, it's more than just a place where people go to work, hmm. right? To a certain extent, it's the beginning of the building of a community around some idea, I think. Yeah, it's got and a vibe, isn't it? Some, it, some it have, it a does vibe, have a vibe, some don't, funny yeah. enough, but we'll, we'll talk about that. Yeah, sure. and I would, yeah, and I would say that the ones that do have a vibe, you make a really good point, are the ones that are going to be the most you know useful and the most liked right because the ones that don't are just like an empty room you might as well be yeah. at home and we can talk about remote working as well in the context of this but that means that you know if there is a vibe there people are going to want to go there to have that whole community get built around them and also to feel like they're part of something right yeah and the reason why we're talking about this obviously co-working is a big thing we're talking about some of the data and also the Asia Tech Podcast ranking. So we have the best co-working space award currently out there. We'll talk about that as well coming up and who's on the list and which co-working spaces are leading the vote. Excited to share some of the data on that. Some of the recommendations and nominations from the listeners as well. Should we start with some of the data on co-working, especially in Asia? Because this is such a recent thing that even though, I mean, for you and I, we're very active in the ecosystem in Asia just to see this happen around us sometimes we have to sort of step out of it and look at wow look what's going on it's just taking yeah. off 2017 was the year of co-working in Asia wasn't it so we have a look at some of the data please do I mean you what do you, what do you want to talk about first well there's two big deals this year in Asia with co-working you have the tie-up between Naked Hub the Chinese company and JustCo so they've now become the biggest co-working space in Asia. And you also have WeWork coming into Asia and setting up in Singapore. And now WeWork got 4.4 billion, yep, read that right, funding from, 
SoftBank. So the SoftBank is that really four point four billion dollars? I'm gonna have to read this again. Let me go back. No, but I mean, but that's just regardless if it's even close, even if a zero's off, it doesn't. <laughs> it doesn't matter. It's just right. so much money. Well, SoftBank Group. This is the Vision Fund, a $93 billion Vision Fund, announced right. it will invest $4.4 billion in WeWork. So New- WeWork's obviously New York-based, but their big push now is into Asia. Check out some of these numbers, Michael. When you hear this, how do you react to this? So here's the thing with WeWork. It started in 2010, so it's only seven years old, and it's already securing that kind of funding. Well, this is a New York company? Yeah, I'm asking. Yeah, it is, right? Yeah, yeah. It's, 2010. Uh, that's not that long ago. Exactly. And the interesting thing, I mean, it, it's it trying lots of different business models. You talked about different business models. So some, you know, WeWorks, they have co-living spaces at the top, you know, on the seventh floor type thing. Yeah. They have gyms. And they're experimenting and trying different kind of things. But now they're in 16 countries, 160 offices. They want to have 150,000 members by 2020 i believe that's so that a big part of that is going to be in asia now that's a big push obviously four billion will do a lot to help that push and now they're valued check this out they're valued at the seventh most valuable privately held company in the world that's a list that includes uber xiaomi airbnb spacex and so on wow i mean asia's on fire yeah yeah i mean asia's on fire for sure but i'm just dumbfounded that in a short seven years, they've been able to go from zero to right. you know, the seventh largest private company in the world based yeah. on market value. But I wonder – so here's the thing though, right? What is the actual business model? Because I want to talk about the JustCo and the Naked Hub as well. Yeah. But what's the business model originally? Because originally like a co-working space was really just a place where – it's startups for the most part, but like not even fully formed SMEs would go, pay a monthly fee, sometimes pay a slightly discounted yearly fee, and you know gather around a community of like-minded or similar style companies, and then just grow from there. And yet, as they continued to grow, then they would move out of that space, right? So it was a little bit of a transient place to work, but I feel like mm. that model is changing, right? And the way that these companies were making their money was mostly off those monthly fees and maybe they would have extra charges for meeting rooms and if you wanted to use some of their equipment they'd charge you for that too and some of them like you said had a cafe on the roof or a gym and there were just extra fees there so it was almost like you just have like a piecemeal version of what a real mature office was like but it mm. seems to me if you're investing 4.4 billion dollars in a company it seems to me, and I don't know this, right, but I get the sense that this is starting to be more of a real estate play. Yep. So you get access to like a global real estate business and the rest of the business kind of funds it. In other words, there's no way in my mind, and we can run through like some of the possibilities, but there's no way in my mind that a co-working space on its own and even one that operates in 16 countries and has 150,000 members Right, and what's one hundred and fifty thousand? Even if you're charging, I don't know, fifty dollars a month or a thousand dollars a year, I forget exactly what we were paying. It's probably more like four or five thousand dollars a year, right? It's just not going to generate enough revenue to justify yeah. the valuation just for the monthly fees. Yeah. yeah. So it seems like they're making a big bet on real estate acquisition, building acquisition as well. Now, you you may or may not know this, but and I want to get the name of this building. Correct, because it wasn't the Van Cleef and Arpel building. 
what was the name of this building in in New York where the WeWork headquarters just moved into? Mm. Right. So it was on Fifth Avenue. Let me just do this really quickly. WeWork. It's okay. I mean, this was like a premier building Mm -hmm. that they moved into. I'll I'll, I'll find the name of it. But the the idea is that they're now starting to acquire like real old-fashioned style buildings and they're regenerating these buildings like back into co-working spaces. And that's where it seems to me like they're really starting to make these into real estate businesses writ large, right? And it's interesting because you get a diversified real estate portfolio that's global – and you get all the revenue that's associated with a co-working space, right? So even if you think about a normal real estate investment trust or a REIT, they're uniquely regional or local. Mm-hmm. And here you have something that's like a global view on this. Like, what, what, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, these are definitely turning into real estate plays. And it's certainly a conversation that you and I have had as well about. Right, co- right. I mean, I mean, that's a conversation for another podcast. But I, I think it's interesting as well. The way we've seen this evolve, you, you've completely sort of, you know, laid out how it has happened. It started as a piecemeal thing. You know, I think at the time, most people would have seen co-working as a, a stepping stone, as you say, towards something else. Yeah. And therefore, the kind of people that stayed there long term were, you know, maybe unsuccessful businesses. And people saw it had that bit of a, you know, that kind of a, uh, an image. But it's really evolved. And I think now, and we've seen this deal as well, I believe, right about the time that SoftBank announced that deal with WeWork, HSBC in Hong Kong decided they were going to close down one of their offices and put everybody into a co-working space. So can you imagine that you know, a bank of all the people has decided to put their staff into a co-working space? So that says a lot of things. It says a lot of things about the attitude towards image it also says about things like trust and security about you know the whole thing about corporate culture so i think when you see hsb make that move hsbc make that move who else could make that move you know because financially culturally productivity wise it could be a smart move for everybody so that is exciting but what does this mean this is actually really fascinating right because <clears throat> Let's use software and AWS as the equivalency for a co-working space, right? Because AWS really is just you're sharing a data center with somebody. I mean, it's simple. It's a slight simplification of that process. But now you're sharing office. So no longer does, you know, Goldman Sachs go out and acquire a building on one Wall Street or somewhere on Wall Street. They let somebody else acquire that building. It's almost like airplane leasing, right? Right. You know, United Airlines or whoever it is doesn't own the plane. They just lease it from somebody who owns the plane. And then they, you know, you know, they brand it with their own stuff and stuff like that. But they never have to have the fixed capital expenditure cost of actually buying that plane. It just changes the whole way that 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 a real estate business works. This is orthogonal to co-working. Mm. But I had never thought about it in that respect. So what does that mean now? Because you're right. If HSBC then who has a massive building, a very, very fancy and famous and well-branded building in Hong Kong, has said, we're not going to put staff or all of our staff in there. We're going to go you know, slightly outside of the central part of the city or even inside the city, but we're not going to own that building anymore. So that's not going to be part of our brand image. We're going to go and put people in a co-working space. Mm-hmm. It just brings up so many other really interesting points. Like, will that mean that there are 
other companies on the same floor or right. in the same building, yeah. right? And what does that mean for shared spaces, shared information, right? Because let's go back to your original question for me, which was, have I worked in a co-working space here? So I kept an office with a friend of mine in um, in the Hive, right? I'm on, on Sukkum with Soy 49, which still remains probably one of my favorite co-working spaces in in Bangkok. And maybe just because it was so close to me, but also because the way the thing was set up, I thought was really good. There were two floors of public space and then two, two floors of private offices um, and then Delhi up at the top. And then even sometimes on Friday nights, they'd show movies. They had a movie theater kind of in open air movie theater upstairs yeah. but everybody in there was not a corporate person and it meant that as an investor I could literally get up from my desk walk outside my office and walk around the building and everybody's office had a little sign on it saying whether they were in marketing or UX design or website building or whatever it was and I used to do this I would walk around and knock on doors and just ask people what are you guys doing what's this company based on and it was a great way, like you said, you know, to build that vibe, right? And it was very startup-y there. But mm. I just wonder, you know, and people would actually leave their offices and lock them because their laptops were in there and there was a network connection there. There were shared printers and stuff. But people were concerned because every company was different what information leakage would be like and just, you know, sort of equipment leakage as well. But... You know, big companies like HSBC have massive amounts of security, information security, physical security mm. as well. And I just wonder how that's going to work. But also, does that mean then that an HSBC employee, just as a proxy for other big corporate employees, will then be able to kind of walk around the floor, even if it means mm. just the building, and interact with other people? Because then you have a really interesting ability to exchange ideas. Exactly. And that is the problem right? for these companies, right? Well, it's it's a big problem, right? Because, I mean, it's a problem on multiple levels, right? Are you afraid that your employees are going to have conversations with people that they don't know and give away proprietary information? You know, is there some concern that they'll have a conversation that's so interesting with somebody in another company that it's almost like a living, breathing interview to move to a different firm? Yeah. Or... You know, will they just be distracted, right? One of the problems of being in a co-working space that I found is that, and one of the reasons why I left actually was because it was so distracting. Mm. Because there was no natural business flow and the people around you were less concerned with your work pace, right? So if you're sitting on a trading floor at Morgan Stanley or if you're sitting in the back office at Goldman Sachs or wherever, you know, everybody around you is kind of on the same schedule. They show up to work at approximately the same right. time. They'll go to lunch at approximately the same time. And there's a workflow there that's pretty standardized. But in co-working, it's different. So I just wonder what the impact on work is going to be. Hmm. It's going to be, well. certainly for these large corporates, that's going to be really interesting. I think what will probably happen is it will probably be an exciting thing at the beginning stages. But what will happen is, is, what they set out to be a co-working space will end up just like another office. I think, you know, they'll have their floor and then, you know, they'll say, we want our passes to our floor and all that sort of push into co-working by corporates will end up becoming corporates in co-working spaces. If that makes sense, I don't think a lot will change. I think 
some may be a bit more open, but the large ones, they'll effectively just be leasing more flexible office space. Yeah, and again, this gets back to the conversation we were having earlier about AWS, right? So in my mind, I'm thinking in the same way that big companies may or may not still run their own data centers, right? They just literally dial up more capacity from Amazon. Mm. If they don't own their own real estate, it means that as they grow or as they shrink, either way, they're not paying for excess office space, right? So this is this gets back to like this whole concept of, you know, what made Uber really great? Was it just having software that allowed them to have a taxi on demand? And the reality is, no, it wasn't. It was building the whole ecosystem that meant that at non-peak hours, only four cars were available. And at peak hours, there were 40 cars available. Like That was the big benefit. And it meant that they could scale up and scale down as necessary. This is something people don't talk about a lot. But in the and again, back in the physical world, if you're running a co-working space that now is also being used or potentially can be used by big companies, you're just changing the entire – maybe this is why WeWork actually ends up being such a valuable business because they can now take over office buildings globally, rebuild them in a way yeah. that's more appropriate for the current work environment. But yeah. if, you've ever, if you've ever seen an office – built from scratch i don't mean the walls i just mean the floors to the ceiling stuff in other words putting all the technology underneath the floors putting the floor panels on and doing that stuff you'll know it's very very sophisticated and highly complex yeah and yet so when, when goldman sachs moved right from the arc hills building in akasaka in tokyo and we moved to Rapungi in the Rapungi hills building and morgan stanley was the same thing when we moved it cost about 110 to 120 million dollars to move yeah because think about it, every computer needed to be rebought because you had to have you had to have um, duplicate setups just in case the move didn't go well. The data center as well had to be duplicated. Everything, desks, phones, everything, just in case. And the old office actually, you probably still had to pay rent for a few months because you just weren't sure, and also because everybody couldn't move over at the same time. But if the co-working space and office space in general is going to move into a category like Uber or Airbnb where it's just on demand and the whole tenor of that business changes. Now you're talking about a really interesting move. I wonder what it does to real estate values. Yeah. You know, in central business districts and stuff like that, right? Because a lot of co-working is kind of off, not off the beaten path, but it's outside of the CBD. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the real estate values is tied to the, the, the lease, right? So, I mean, if you can get a good income on that lease, it significantly increases the value of that real estate, right? And I'm sure that, you know, co-working spaces can generate more. If they're fully populated, can generate more revenue than, you know, a standard office lease. And this this goes back to the Airbnb model, doesn't it? There's a lot of people doing Airbnb, but it's not professionalized yet. And I think a lot of people are probably making as much money or less money on Airbnb as they would have done if they rented it to a private tenant and had that fully, you know, occupied for a year without any sort of void periods, any issues. And it's more expensive to rent to Airbnb as well because the needs are higher. They want better fittings. They leave feedback. So you've, you've got to be on your game. So I think it's the same with co-working as well, is that I imagine that this industry is ripe for polarization. You're going to get the people who know how to play the game and have their processes and their data about what customers want 
or how to do this or how to arrange this, how to set up the inside of the office. They're the ones who are going to make a lot more money, drive up real estate value because they'll be able to double, maybe treble what a standard office lease could get. However, there's going to be a whole bunch of independent style co-working operators who haven't got their act together, who are going to make less money or go out of business. Right. So this is the conversation. So watch this, right? And we've talked about this in different industries, but this is where I think the WeWork strategy and also the Naked Hub and the JustCo strategy start to get brilliant. Um, and here it is. And that is, if you're running an office building or you own three office buildings, the only data, <laughs> it's always back to the same conversation, right? But the only data you have about occupancy, you have general occupancy information probably from the state or the, you know, the, the country in which you live. And you maybe have average rental rates, right? But you don't know for sure because you don't own all that data. But now if you change, if you flip the bit a little bit and big companies then just outsource their buildings, that's what WeWork is is doing. Mm. That means that then you own all the data for way more buildings. Now you know when to construct something, when to buy a building, where the most buildings are being used. Like it impacts so much of the economy that that's why that business, because now you have everybody's data, right? In the old days, we talked about this, right? Like if I'm running my own hospital, I don't know what the data is that the other hospital has. And there might be some sharing back and forth. But since that's my edge, they may not share all of the data and they may not share it, you know, on a timely basis. Mm. But if I'm WeWork now and companies like HSBC are in my building, if I know that in six months they're expanding, then I know, again, just like when Amazon knew that a startup is getting better because it's using more servers and more data and more throughput, you know, WeWork is going to know which cities are growing. They're going to know maybe even before any other people know because the people are moving into their buildings. But they'll also know which businesses are expanding and contracting from an employment perspective too. This ends up giving them a whole bunch of really interesting data, which means then that they can get even deeper into the real estate business because they'll know more than any other real estate developer ever could know because they own the whole thing, right? They're that layer and that platform on top of everything or below everything, depending on what your perspective is. And then they'll have all this accumulated data and be able to say, we need two more buildings in Manila Mm. and they need to be in this location because this is an underused metro station. And because of that, there's less traffic around, or whatever that is. And then if they work in conjunction with the ride sharing, right, you have those two really powerful businesses come together. I mean, this could be really, really powerful, actually. That's why they're getting such a big investment. And then conceptualize this, too. Sorry, I feel like I'm going off on a tangent, but I don't think so in a way. And that is, if they work together with another platform business like Airbnb, they'll also know where people are staying when they travel on business. Yeah, this is a completely different way to think about what a co-working space is and, and what type of business it can be, no? We have that co-living space as well that they've explored. I don't know how that's working out, but interesting to hear what the future is for that. Just going back to your point about the data. So Masayoshi Son, who's the uh, well, the founder and chairman right. of SoftBank, when he was talking yep. about this, this uh, investment into WeWork, he said, this is the, the the first line that he said, it's interesting that data comes up and he says, we'll, you know, WeWork is leveraging the latest technologies and its own proprietary data systems 
to radically right. transform the way people work. So it must have been what they were doing with the data that convinced Masayoshi's son that this had real potential because the latest technologies, I can't really see that being something that's not replicable. You know, latest technologies for a co-working space, mm, I can't really see it. You know, I don't think there's anything that they could protect that with IP, but data systems, what kind of data are they collecting about how people work and what are they doing with that? That must be what they, even if it gives them a 10% edge, you know, it's like with the, the coffee shops, isn't it? It gives Starbucks that edge that they can then go yep. and get the best real estate in town, which can squeeze out a competitor, which gives them more cash to go and get the next best real estate in the next town, right? Correct. And I think that's what's happening with WeWork. It may just be a 10 or 20% edge, but that may be enough to tip the balance in their local area. Yeah, and Graham, to be fair, you know this from running your own business, right? If you write back-end, sophisticated back-end systems that help you run your business, other people that are trying to compete in the media space can't keep up with you yeah. because it's so much easier for you to run what you're doing, and that's proprietary, and that's what they're doing. And yeah, like if you think about the way, you know, again, we said earlier, right? So Uber, the, the, the mode around the Uber business is not necessarily just having an app that helps you book a car because a taxi company could have done that at any time. Mm. The problem with the taxi yeah. company, and they did, but it didn't, it didn't matter because the problem with those taxi companies were that they always have to have their cars on the road. So there was no difference between necessarily between peak time and off peak time. And if it was, it was subtle. But with Uber, because you're an independent driver, you can't be told when or when not to be on, but mm. it optimizes naturally because at the busiest times, right, between 5 o'clock and 8 o'clock at night, there are going to be way more cars on the road than they're going to be at like 11 o'clock in the morning because everybody's either already at work or already at school or, you know, already at lunch or already somewhere. But then later when you need more cars, the system self-optimizes because that's the way the whole thing was built. And I wonder if that's part of the sort of sophisticated technology that WeWork has already built, mm. understanding how to... Remember, we talked about GDSs too when it comes to travel, right? In other words, <clears throat> the airlines never were able to optimize seat capacity and load balance because they didn't have all the data. But once they did, then they could be way more efficient in operating for fuel and everything else. Just think about the savings a, a building would have if it knew in advance who was going to be in what floor at what time, like just from an energy standpoint, elevator use, all the things that make work a better environment. And like you said, it only has to be a small edge when you're dealing with billions of dollars, 3%, 4%, 5% are yeah. massive con contributors to the bottom line. Exactly. Do you think that's behind WeWork's pitch documents where they projected they would be turning over, sorry, not turning over, but producing $941 million in profit by, get this, 2018? Yeah, again, I mean, I'm just dumbfounded, but the more I think about it, the less surprising it, the less surprising it is to me. You know, w whenever you and I have a conversation like this, the same thing always goes through my head, and that is, what business out there that hasn't been yet considered or attacked in this way, right? Because if yeah. you'd said to me, co-working space, there are plenty of co-working businesses um, in Southeast Asia. So Fly Spaces, which is actually quoted in this article, is one of them, and then there was Eight Spaces, which was merged with Fly Spaces. This is a funded company, Fly Spaces, that's in, um, you know, based out of Manila. 
But my question for them, and I, I know the CEO, this guy Mario Berta, right, is they're never going to have – I feel bad, right? But they're just never going to have $4.4 billion to go out and acquire – because in the same way that AWS – owns all the servers, right? They own all the machines. They own all those buildings. And as a as a user of servers and data, I don't need to own them. And I don't really care where they are or mm. what they cost. And I don't mm. care as long as the machines are the most updated machines and that the throughput is, you know, 99.99% uh, guaranteed. I don't really care, right? But, but that's why smaller companies that do cloud computing, because really what WeWork is, is it's like a cloud yep. working space. That's all it is, right? Cloud working. And if it, but it's cloud working because if it does the same thing to office space yeah. and working that AWS did to, you know, building a startup business, right? So Amazon Web Services famously, you know, took a startup cost from an initial down payment really of like five million dollars to like fifty thousand dollars. Because mm-hmm. all of the server stuff, all of the server side stuff, but not even just the physical servers. All of the software around running that business, whether it was security, you know, logins, building a new – all this kind of stuff was very hard to do. But you had to rebuild it every single time. Mm-hmm. So I wonder what the impact to the bottom line is for the same type of systematic you – know, for the same systems that are getting built for WeWork. And that's got to be the edge. But then it brings up the question is you know, what happens to a company like Flyspaces, which frankly isn't big enough to be acquired, right? So just go – merged with the naked hub right right and there's a reason why because if you look at what jusco says jusco i mean the naked hub says you know that these two businesses were the biggest businesses in their specific regions and when they merged together that it was just going to be the best combination of two big businesses that weren't competing directly with each other but where does it leave the smaller players right Mm. and it's a rhetorical question but if i said to you or to anybody right if i asked one a question and that was you know Name me, you know, name me five co-working spaces, or you know, na- name me the AWS replacement business that's really small still and that still exists. So, like, name me a cloud computing business, right? That's not AWS and that's mm-hmm. not Azure and that's not run by Huawei. I couldn't think of one. But you know, m- maybe there is a space because with cloud computing, it's pretty straight down the line what the needs are, and it's really just a quantitative thing in terms of scaling up get more and more i think with co-working spaces you could look at it maybe like the coffee shops that you have big global players like starbucks who are able to eat up the lion's share of that fast food retail so that exists but at the same time there is you know what's happened is the middle ground's been lost in that market right you've got all the the big players the starbucks of this world and then all the middle players have been wiped out, but you have the smaller players who are the local boutique coffee stores. You know, maybe just a one-off where you have the the barista with a beard and his way of making that skinny latte, and it's a bit of an art form. They'll never become two stores, but they always have their local patrons. So I think maybe that will happen with co-working. Maybe there will be a co-working space for just artists or just you know, designers or just engineers, that kind of thing. Maybe there's vibes different. As I mean, one of the interviews I did on Asia Tech podcast was Honey Katuria, who runs cowork.com, which is basically oh, right. yep. basically a, a directory of all co-working spaces. Where she's trying to grow that directory globally, but she's 
collecting all the information and putting it out there and so people can understand what's out there. But one of the questions I asked her was, you know, where is the co-working spaces evolving off away from the mainstream? And she's saying, well, you know, there's kind of interesting things. So it's like co-working spaces just for moms, you know, like with their kids. Because you imagine if you had, you know, if you're a working mom with a young child, you probably wouldn't be very welcome in most co-working spaces because there's people working and so on, or you wouldn't feel welcome. So those kind of things are happening. So I think, you know, to the point about the small players, they have to then find their niche. Otherwise, they're just going to get eaten for lunch. Yeah, and you, again, you bring up a really good point because I hadn't even thought about um, the concept of co-working for specific types of you know people whether it's engineers or artists or dancers or you know or moms right or you know single dads or whatever right because they've got kids to take care of but they can't take them to work per se but if there's a co-working space where there's a nursery there or you know parent care services child care services um that is a really interesting space i just wonder if those businesses end up being non-investable right in other words they may be they may be viable businesses, and I was having this conversation earlier, um, you know, with Rajesh Segal, an angel investor from um, from India. He runs something called Equanimity Investments. But we were having this conversation of you know a good business is a good business, but it doesn't necessarily make it an investable business. And I just wonder if you know one of the things that this uh, the Vision Fund one of the impacts that it's having is it's kind of accelerating the growth of businesses that are already established and mm-hmm. it's establishing, it's also, you know, accelerating their, you know, them getting a gigantic moat around them. Right. So a company like Flyspaces was just invested, you know, six months ago, or eight months ago, it was a big announcement, series a, you know, a big investor from the Philippines invested in them. But if, I think if they had known that we work was going to do it, because that's in the same space, right? Either they're going to have to pivot into being a more of a niche player or they're just going to, get run over i think and that's no insult intended to them at all but i'm just concerned about what the impact of that vision fund investment in this space has on those other participants right in other words like what happens to hubba when nobody wants to go down to you know ekamai soy four and go all the way to the end of the soy where it's just really inconvenient and to be fair, the hive is all the way down Soy 49. The only co-working space in town that I know of is the work loft that's right next to um, Saladang Station. And I'm, I know I'm saying station names that people don't know, but literally right next to a metro. So, But it's small, right? It's really small. And it, that may end up being a niche business because maybe they just didn't expand fast enough or maybe yeah. they didn't understand what the proper business model was i just and i wonder what the metaphor is there for other businesses that are similar but that haven't figured that out yet Hmm. yeah i think you're right they they will have to become a niche business otherwise they'll just get forgotten i mean anybody in the middle ground but you know it's kind of like you you go into town and i know people talk about the exodus of retail outside of you know central business districts or central shopping areas within towns and you know, you have the big malls and all that kind of donut effect going on. But you still have, you know, the guy who runs that music store way out in the suburbs somewhere, which people trek across town to get to that music store because he's the only guy that sells drum kits or whatever. And people will go to that. But you're right. He's probably got a profitable business. He's probably doing very well out of it, that owner. He probably, nobody will shut that business down. It's his to lose, no. but it's not investable. 
because no, that yeah, can't expand. That's him and his clientele and his personal touch and all that kind of stuff. And I think that may be, be the fate of those kind of middle ground co-working spaces, maybe like Hubber, I have to say. Right. You know, if they don't have yeah. that kind of investment. No, and like, th- so think about this, right? So, you know, you and I talk about having an event somewhere. Yeah. Right, and a co-working space is, ends up being a great place for that event because they build in spaces like this. Whether it's, you know, on the first floor of Launchpad, you were at Launchpad when you were visiting Bangkok yep. a few weeks ago, and that whole area downstairs was built in such a way that it could be a workspace during the day and kind of an event space at night, um, and that's great. But if you look at some of the other co-working spaces, they weren't built for that. But now, if you're WeWork. And you and I, you know, want to have an event somewhere or, you know, Texas wants to have an event somewhere or whatever it is, they're not going to have it in a sort of small niche co-working space, even though in the old days that would have been the perfect place for it. Like when, when Grab Taxi did one of their first presentations in Bangkok, it was actually at Hubba mm. and there were 40 people or more, 50 people gathered around as, you know, the founders and sort of the business dev people there talked about it. Easy Taxi did the same thing, but that, that can't happen anymore. Because the businesses are just growing so fast. I'm just thinking about this. It's really interesting what's going to happen. Because mm-hmm. now when you want to do an event, like when Rise goes to Hong Kong and has 17,000 people at an event, maybe, and this is interesting to con- conceptualize, maybe they don't do it at the Hong Kong Convention Center. Maybe they don't do it. Maybe they don't do it at, um, sorry, at, uh, at a big hotel. Maybe they do it at a co-working space yeah. because all of the facilities there are set up with the high-speed internet. You know, maybe there's an Ethernet port so you can have a hard connection to the internet. Maybe there's a facility there that people use every day, like a Cisco Sparkboard or some of the things that you and I have talked about. Where doing that type of really modern, very you know, highly efficient event doesn't work unless it's at a place like that that's been heavily invested in technology. And maybe that's part of their tech edge as well. Mm. I love that idea. That's certainly something we're going to explore. Hey, should we talk about the the vote as well? So, yeah, please talk do. about the award for best co working space in Asia for Asia Tech Podcast. So, if you go to asiatechpodcast dot com slash rankings and look for the award, which is best co working space in Asia, what we want to do is we want the listeners to support the co working spaces that they love, that the ones that they frequent of good experiences of so those co-working spaces can get out there so people can find out about them and learn what is you know what is the models that we should need to copy if you want to be successful as a co-working space in asia so what's interesting about this vote michael is that we only actually seeded this with about two or three names and there's there's a whole bunch there must be about 50 no 30 or 40 names now maybe more on this list of best co-working spaces yeah all nominated by the listeners so do you want to have a look at this list? I am. I'm looking at it. I've been looking at it the whole time we've been talking, and it's really fascinating to me that the Naked Hub is the first one. Yep, Shanghai. Again, one of the co- one of the companies that's been involved in these mergers that we talked about. And, you know, again, the Naked Hub and JustCo consider themselves the best co-working spaces in North Asia and in South Asia, so they're making that combination. That's interesting. Um, the Hub in Singapore, which has nicely climbed up the rankings. It yeah. wasn't always this high. Yep. Um, Cyberport is in third, so a big co-working space in Hong Kong, and then there it is. We, we work. work. Yeah. 
right? Number four. Right there in number four. And I get the feeling that after people think about this and, and we talk about it a little bit more that we're going to see a lot more votes here. But I, I'm not sure that the order is going to change that much because if you go, you know, let's go, let's go for slightly further down the list, right? Um, and let's be fair too. So we spoke to people that run and own and manage the hub, right? The hub is actually quite an interesting business, if you don't mind me saying. It's an integrated business, right? So it's not just a place to co-work. It's a place where in a way – Right, so please give me a little bit of poetic license here to the owners of the hub if I get this slightly wrong. But it's also a place where they're trying to sort of incubate and accelerate some of the startup companies that are there, right? And we talked to—I forget her name. I think it was Grace, Grace but I can't remember. Grace it was Grace, right? Yeah. yeah. So Grace Sai was—we talked to her a little bit, and she said, you know, they do do very well attended events there. Some of those events are from overseas, so people from outside the country come into Singapore and outside the region come into Singapore. And do events there, and maybe that's one of the reasons why it's so highly rated. But I'd love to be a fly on the wall in the meetings now with these two rivals that are just so heavily funded, right? Because, like you said, you know, when Starbucks was founded in Seattle, there were just coffee shops everywhere, and nobody considered running a coffee shop as a global business. Yeah. Right. Now, Starbucks ends up being a logistics and a delivery business as well, right? Because getting coffee from one place all over the world at the same time at the same quality is a logistics problem, not necessarily a food problem. But nobody really foresaw that taking place before it did. And yet now there are five or six global kind of Starbucks-style companies. And I think the same thing is going to happen here. I don't think it's just going to be the WeWork team and the Naked Hub and the Jusco team either. But I wonder, as we said earlier, on this list – you know, getting highly rated is great, right? Because that means that there's a there are people out there that really love these places. Launchpad mm. is highly rated. Your favorite. Um, yep. Hoopoot is there. And that's it's going to be hard for that one to, I think, fall off the rankings. And no. I'll tell you why. It's never going to go away, right? Because WeWork is never going to go to Ubud and create a co-working yeah, space to compete with this. It's just not going to happen. No. That's unique. I mean, that's kind of what I was talking about with that. Yep, you know, going neat, you. you know, it's kind of, that's an example, because I don't think, I know they're trying it, or have tried it, you could take that concept necessarily to another city, because it's so unique to Ubud in Bali, in that rice field, you know, a big bamboo co-working space. Yeah, but few, I wonder, like... Sorry, there's a ahead. few others as well, there's a few notable entries, I think we should give them some airtime, is Campfire in Hong Kong, that's a new one, that's just popped up in the last couple of days and it's got a lot of votes behind it that's one and then there's this other one paper and toast which i've never heard of in malaysia which i'm assuming is kl so yeah but i i don't know i mean maybe it's in the genting highlands like that would yeah. be kind of like what ubud is like maybe. but or penang maybe yeah and i mean we spoke to we spoke to rena neo yesterday and you know we're talking a lot about the development and the sort of robustness of the startup community in Penang and it's not small there's some great companies that have been built there and that have stayed there so I wonder if any of these are in Penang and then the newest one that, that I heard of actually a couple of days ago is something called Platform E yeah right so Platform E actually ends up being a very interesting space so I haven't been there yet I don't know if you have Bangkok? but I cannot wait where, to go where is it? no no Platform E is the one in Singapore oh okay Right, so that's the one that's run or associated with the Singapore Institute of Management. It is right, a yeah. huge space. Yeah, yeah, okay. Right, and this is another. This is just another category. Right, so 
you know, I, I think these industries always tend to bifurcate, right? They split into kind of two categories, really small, right? Mm. Places like, you know, Hubud, which is never going to go away, right? And maybe something like Launchpad in, in Bangkok as well, um, and Cyberpoint. I don't know how big it is. And the hub in Singapore obviously has a really strong following. But, but the other side of it is these huge places like the Naked Hub and JustCo and then the WeWork places. And, you know, maybe Platform E finds a place to do this as well with very strong local support. The Singapore Institute of Management is a very, not, not powerful, but an influential hmm. um, institution there. And they have very big, you know, dreams or goals for what this space is going to end up being. And, you know, again, if you're considering doing something in the startup space, in a place that's near like where all the other startups are, and if they do a good job of, you know, sponsoring companies to be in that space, yeah. then boy, if you want to run a business that has, you know, connectivity to that, you would really consider running it out of um, out of that space as well, right? Out of Platform yeah. E. Like, I'm very excited to go see what that looks like and to see how they build it out. And And I know for a fact that, you know, that True, which is one of the mobile phone operators in Thailand, is also building a very big business like this, similar to Platformy, right on the um, BTS line as well. It's just another entrant into this business. I don't think that, you know, that the winners have been decided necessarily, even though we no. talked a lot about what the power of WeWork and the JustCo combination, I mean, the JustCo and um, Naked Hub combination was. But a lot of people want to get into this space, and that's only – this is the same story, right? It's only good for people that are consuming those services. Yeah, yeah. I think a big big deciding factor in their success is how – we talked about it at the top of the show – how they build a community. It's the vibe, isn't it? And look at Platform E as an example. I'm just checking out its website. 25,000 square feet right. of space, which is huge for co-working space. Huge. And the prices are reasonable. But I imagine that, you know, a key factor for these co-working spaces, if you've mentioned it already, is can they run events at these co-working spaces? With 25,000 square feet, there must be a few thousand kicking around that could be opened up for an event. You could run an yeah. event. You could make this thing, this space, a communal hub. You know, even if 98, 90% of the people who came to the event weren't, you know, hot desking or had fixed desks at your co-working space, the fact that you could right. get people there... You could create traffic, you could create interest. That's going to be huge in their success long term. But also, just in terms of creating that extra level of revenue on top of what they're already doing, that fixed revenue that they're getting from, you know, these people co-working day to day. That would be, you know, yeah. the, the co-working would bankroll that kind of next level of, you know, services they could add on top of it. Well, that's the other thing is, you know, I feel like in so many industries, the cost of the original service itself is collapsing to zero, right? We saw it in the phone business. So just phone calls globally are zero because of all the ancillary services or, you know, added services that companies put on top of it. Do you think, because here's the thing, if Singapore, just as an example, wants to make itself or continue to have it be sort of the you know, the startup country or the startup focus and hub in Southeast Asia, if they've done something like Block 71, which was sort of a, a serendipitous experiment in giving a place for venture capitalists um, and startups to be housed, what happens when it, this just becomes so important to governments and localities that they say, it's fine, 
as long as you can meet certain criteria, you can be in the building for free. Yeah. And what does that do to the business models of companies like WeWork? In other words, what are the – and I don't mean it's going to go away, right? Because if I had told you in the 1980s or in the 1970s that voice calls were going to be free, you would say that the phone companies would go away. And yet there they are right. as powerful if not more powerful than ever. So what does that business look like? This is where it starts to get really interesting. Right. right? In other words – if renting a building is free, so you can just go there, but you have to meet certain criteria, right? Like you have to have 10 employees, or you have to employ enough local, whatever it is. What are the other services that they're going to offer on top of it? So how do they end up making money? That mm. That's actually a fascinating question. And also, what does it mean for the people on the list, right? So what does that do to companies like, you know, the hub in Singapore that remain independent businesses and yet cannot necessarily afford to offer free unless they figure it out. So here's a great idea. Maybe what we do is, you know, we, meaning the general we, is we start a co-working space as a test, three floors, office is free for startups, but there are other services around it or other people that pay for it. So the offices for a startup are subsidized, but the offices for the venture capitalists are, you know, subsidize that money, like whatever. There's a There's got to be a way to do this. That changes the whole business model, and that's mm. what some of these—that's what some of these investments are teaching us, I think. And now, the more I think about it, so I'm glad we had this depth of this conversation. Is maybe that means like places like the hub can have sustainable businesses, or like you know, hub here or Launchpad, because they figure out another way to make money, yeah. even though the rent for the office space itself ends up being for free. I, I don't know. It's an interesting idea, though. Yeah, I, I think the point about the cost of servicing these, uh, you know, providing the services going down. I mean, evidenced by the fact that the the prices these co-working spaces are charging seem to be going down over time. I don't think it will yeah. go to free because land will always have a value, unlike airtime, which can be unlimited. But I Fair think enough. you're right. The, the layer on top is what services they can provide. You know, what is the – you've got to look at the co-working space itself – as almost like your fixed income, your bankroll, which gives you a bit of cash to experiment with the stuff that sits on top of it, right? Right, you know, right. It's kind of like that would be in your investment portfolio, that would be your bond or your guilt, which would just Correct. kind of be your base on which to build on, right? It's not going to make you your millions, not going to make you the home run hits, but it's certainly going to keep you in the game, right? And that's kind of what we're looking at. So, But what sits on top of it? I think events... It, that's the big area because you've got a co-working spaces, a gathering of people. We talked about community. And even in this day and age when people spend most of their time online, the big value still isn't face-to-face. -face. The analog, right? That's where the money is. You look at the music industry. There's, there you have an example. Yeah, I mean, you? it really is, right? Live concerts, all those things make sense. Whereas in the old days, there was a period of time where we thought, you know, no one was going to buy music at any level, yeah. and even if they did, they weren't going to go watch a concert because they could enjoy it in the, you know, in the quiet, quiet, excuse me, in the privacy of their own home. And yet, there it is again. This face-to-face -face concert business is huge. I think yeah. you're right, actually. Yeah, I think you're really. I think you're really right here. I don't know. Maybe I think I think one of the great things about these conversations that we have is the business idea generation that comes yeah. out of them. I really mean that. And I think if you're listening to this and you're not getting some ideas and you're not paying close enough attention because 
this is where real business ideas come from, from this type of what do you think about this and why do you think that matters to, oh my gosh, there's a massive opportunity in a yeah. space that's, again, is orthogonal to this and not directly related, but that's really fascinating to me. Yeah, so tweet us at Asia Tech Pod. Let us know your opinions. If you have an opinion, if you've tried anything like this, if you have experience in the co-working spaces or you just think that we're nuts in terms of the kind of business models we're shooting out today, shooting from the hip, but that's how we roll here. And also go to asiatechpodcast.com slash rankings, asiatechpodcast.com slash rankings, where you can nominate, if it's not there already, and or support your favorite co-working space. We're really looking for the best of the best in Asia. So please help us identify who they are and you know give them the credit that they deserve. Because maybe they're just so busy building a great co-working space, they're not out there promoting themselves that's often the case isn't it so we want those guys to get some credit and some limelight as well so we're here to do that go to asiatechpodcast.com slash rankings michael good conversation what's coming next what is coming next uh, there's a lot coming next i mean you want to talk about so i interviewed again somebody today for atp angels right a guy named um, rajesh Sigal talked a lot about his experience coming into running his own angel investment business. He's been doing angel investments for over 10 years. I think he started back in 2006. So getting that conversation out there is going to be really interesting too. Um, I also did a conversation with Rena Neo. Rena is one of the co-founders of Mercatus Capital. Mm. That was a really interesting conversation too. If you've listened to the previous angel conversations, you'll really enjoy this. Um, I'd say the other thing that's coming up, which is fascinating is the conversations that we're having people in the blockchain and the cryptocurrency space. Those conversations continue to get more and more in-depth, and we're doing all of that at ATP Crypto. And that has been, for me, it's been paradigm-changing the way I think about what's going to happen in every business. So I didn't want to spend time today talking about how the blockchain could even impact something as mundane as the co-working spaces, but we'll talk about that too yeah, as people yeah. come and bring online how you know, micropayments, um, smart contracts, and all that stuff is going to happen too. And also, I would say this, coming up, we're going to have some ama- more amazing guests on these verticals as well. AsiaTechPodcast.com. If you go and check out those verticals under the menu of podcasts on the homepage, you can go and find crypto, asiatechpodcast.com slash crypto or slash angels if you want to go and check out what Michael's talking about. We'll be back next week for more. Thanks, Michael. Thank you, Graham. You've been listening to Asia Tech Podcast. Find out more at www.asiatechpodcast.com.